At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I got to chat with my old friend Eric Kim, a New York Times staff writer who you may also remember for his essays on cooking and dining alone in the Table for One column back when he was our senior editor at Food52. I was also very lucky that he was my editor on the Genius column, Once Upon a Time. Now, Eric is also the author of a new cookbook and memoir, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home, which will be out March 29th. In this episode, we will get to hear so much about the unexpected ways that this book came to be, as Eric found himself back home in Atlanta cooking with his mother, Jean, for the better part of a year, and specifically about this week's genius recipe for crispy yangyum chickpeas with caramelized honey. But first, here's Eric to tell us just how early his path toward writing a cookbook started. In third grade, that's really when I started cooking, I think. Uh, I was like really into Food Network and I was watching Sweet Dreams, Gail Gann's dessert show on the network. And so I was really into pastry uh, at one point and and just like desserts in general and especially ice cream desserts you know I like ice cream and <laughs> I made a butter pecan ice cream recipe and just like burned my hand because I think there's a step where mm. you know with ice cream you have to steep the cream and there's a candying the pecan part and I don't know what happened I forgot what exactly but I I just like burned my hand and so I had I had to wear like a kind of patches around it to school the next day and all the third graders were like what happened and I was like oh I was making ice cream and they were they all laughed and they were like oh that's such a great joke ice cream tasted pretty good though I guess I was super into things like that like projects and my mom would support it by buying me an ice cream maker I think I had a stand mixer by fourth grade you know which sounds makes me sound really spoiled but I think a I had expensive hobby, hobbies, I think. <laughs> expensive but sustainable in a way. Like, you know, imagine how much more you could have spent on, like, a bunch of disposable Lego sets and you had a stand mixer that you then used for how long? To develop my cookbook when I was home, yep. <laughs> exactly. It sounds like you started cooking really, really early and doing really advanced projects really early. I imagine you had some of those really memorable learning moments pretty early on. I remember playing around with trout a lot because my uncle young was kind of a fisherman he loved taking us fishing and we would go fishing in north carolina and in the mountains and and we would have to eat it after and he would fry them pretty simply he would dust them in flour fry them 
and just spritzed them with lemon juice. And that was like really delicious. So when I learned that you could buy trout fillets at the grocery store, I started to do the same. I would dust them in flour, pan fry them. And then I was like, well, you could deglaze this pan. So I, I did like lemon juice and white wine. I think another time I did like lime juice and white wine. And I, I just like realized that, oh, th this is really a choose your own adventure situation. And I discovered that those flavors, um, you know, that's really acidic pan sauce right now. But once you add butter to it, which is kind of sweet, um, it really balances it out. And mm. Nigella later in life, maybe college graduate school, she really taught me the power of vermouth. So vermouth rouge and mm. vermouth blanc or just a dry, regular dry vermouth. She would use those in place of wine. Like, I think it had to do with, like, the fact that sometimes you just aren't drinking that much wine in your life. And so you don't want to open a whole bottle for a little pan sauce. So having these bottles of fortified wine in your fridge, it's perfect. But it's also really delicious because they're fortified. They're sweeter. And so they really, they, they deglaze the pan. But once they reduce, they get very syrupy and sticky in, in a very nice way. And so I really loved learning about vermouths as something that I can really use in my cooking. And I actually have a recipe coming out soon that it's like a bacon and onion pasta that has red vermouth as the deglazing element. And I like, I like woke up um, these old tastes that I, I had kind of forgotten about. I used to cook so much with herbs of Provence and chili flakes and red vermouth. There's something about that mix of herbs that's super savory, just really umami rich. It seems like it's from another time, which I feel like you're so good about doing bringing the past bringing like things that maybe were fashionable at a time in the past whether it was like within your lifetime or before someone else's yeah and bringing them into a, a context of today yeah I definitely think I'm a nostalgic person and I'm also just I feel that I've been like I'm a reincarnation of like someone <laughs> I just find it so incredibly fascinating that you were cooking so actively and so ambitiously at a young age. And I feel like I have just a, a billion questions about that. But is there any other moment of your life that you would want to illuminate through talking about the way that you were cooking at that time? I think one thing that was really front of mind for me as I started cooking in a serious way at that young age was the gender dynamics of, of cooking, of being in the kitchen. And it's because of the people around me, not not my family, they were always supportive, you know, but, you know, once in a while, my mom would say something like, oh, I don't need a daughter because I have you. And <laughs> what she meant by that was like, I cooked and I sometimes I made dinner and sometimes, you know, and so I was like a girly son, you know, and she meant it as a compliment, of course, she always loved that. But um, it I wasn't sure that I was gay, you know, when I started cooking at that young age. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really came out to myself until high school like many kids and so that was really interesting and then when your friends find out that you're cooking like that you're this like fifth grader who bakes cakes they're sort of like hmm that's kind of gay and yeah so that was like it's like almost like I couldn't really cook in public and it's really ironic because now I do that all the time mm. one thing I kind of learned was that we gays <laughs> we gay bakers were able to kind of reclaim it and be like yeah, what if it what if it is gay? I think the point though is that we don't actually believe that our sexuality has anything to do with the, the act of baking, but it's the po politicized kind of environment around this notion of of gender roles and baking specifically that and I think you see it all the time in professional kitchens, right? Like the the fire, the the heat of the the stove is way more 
masculine than than the than the gentle you know whim of the oven or something. I cook way more with the oven now, um, and I think I wonder sometimes if it has to do with the fact that I because I've like I'm not afraid to use it anymore. You know, I'm not ashamed of who I am, and I I love I love cooking and I love roasting things. <laughs> I still love baking cakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, so I, I think about that sometimes. There's there were those resonances back then, people making fun of you for cooking. That 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 happened a few times. So until I kind of made it a career, and I think it was always inevitable. Yeah. Me making it a career, it was just always mm-hmm. there. The past is always gonna come back to the present and force mm-hmm. you to confront it. Like you can never really get get rid of it. So I think that's why I'm so interested in embracing it. You said you were sort of baking in secret. Was that kind of true through much of your childhood? Like, when was that moment that you decided to start talking about it again with friends or or publicly? Yeah, I remember one distinct thing. I had a blog a long time ago. I think I posted a cake or something. I had baked something. And my cousin, he commented under it, Oh, so you're baking now? Are you gay? On your blog? (laughs) Yeah, on my blog. He was like a, he was such a um, hater. And um, I remember being so angry. I was like, why does this have anything to do with my sexuality? Also, I'm like 13. I have no idea. It was really, I was, I was in my teens. I was, I was still very young, probably like high school. I just think from that moment, I I was doing it less publicly and like less, even though in my own home, my parents and my brother were all super supportive and because they got to eat these things, you know, it was this balance of the private and the public. And I was like, you know, man, I am a baker. <laughs> I love baking. I bake all the time you know, now, and I'm not afraid of it. I I think I've really found solace in baking, and I love it. And there's actually a milk bread in the book that is, I, I call it the mascot of the book. And that was mm-hmm. something that really empowered me as well. I was like, not only am I a baker, but I can also make a really good loaf of bread now. And That sounds so empowering. After changing careers from academia to food writing and working in food media for several years, what was it that made you want to write this specific book as your first? Yeah, this is, I can tell the exact story, actually. It's, it's quite chronological. I started mm-hmm. at Food Network immediately after dropping out. Like I had like a, a week off, I think. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, man, this is the one moment in my life to have a vacation, and I didn't take it. Um, I started mm-hmm. a job soon after. It was this entry-level position where I just, I was inputting re- uh, recipes. I was like data entering from a doc into foodnetwork.com. And in doing that, really monotonous kind of job, you know, um, I learned how to write a recipe. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And... I like to tell that story because I think mm-hmm. it's really important to credit your, you know, your sources and to credit your your origins. And I really, that I didn't realize how important that job would be for me later. I realized, oh, this is something I really enjoy doing. And then on the side, like, I would go to Green Table downstairs. It was this amazing bar that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I loved it because they had a five dollar wine special, I think, and no one was ever there, so I got I got to just like take my laptop and go to the corner and work on this book proposal. I tried to pitch it to a bunch of agents that all said no. They were like, we like the writing, but this isn't going to sell. 
there was like one agent that I was pretty serious with at first. And then she, she was like, I'm really interested in you, but not this book. So do you have any other ideas? So I pitched a Korean cookbook and I wasn't really excited about it. And I got the job at Food 52 and I basically wrote the book there as table for one, the column. My current agent and my current editor reached out and they were like, we really would love to do a book with you. And I think by that point, I had kind of practiced at Food 52. I'd written a couple pieces about my mom and Korean cooking. And I was like, oh, I think this is, this can be an exploration. When I realized that's actually the book, the book is like about discovering about your own heritage and about your own family's cooking and your own culture's cuisine. In writing the book, I became, and I never want to say that I'm an expert on anything, but I became much more confident in talking about Korean food. And I realized by doing it for a whole year, well, it took like two years to write the book, I guess. So by doing it, I realized how much I did have to say about Korean food and about my family. And so that's how the book came and came about. And so I'm really grateful for the first few rejections because I don't think I was ready to write the Korean book yet because I didn't realize how difficult it would be. This was the most difficult thing I've ever done. I think, I don't think people realize how hard memoir writing is. It's, it might be your life and you might think you know it, but I think it's so much harder to write than anything else because it's just, you're so close to it. And so everything is personal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> every battle is personal. Every, every little thing is very personal. So yeah, this is, this is a, memoir and a cookbook and there's a lot of writing in it and I'm so proud of it because it tells my it tells my story and I, th- I also hope that it tells the story of other Korean Americans who have similar experiences across the world and I think that's something that I love doing in my reporting which is finding resonances across the country like the kind of discoveries in the kitchen that I made in Atlanta are the same ones that Irene Yu, my friend, made in LA back then, and the same ones that um, Esther Choi made in New Jersey. Like, we were Americans, but we were also children of Korean parents, and so we had these pantries, but we had school food that was like not what our parents cooked. And so, I just I love that notion of people being totally apart, but kind of having similar experiences apart. Everything makes sense later, I think. (laughs) So I just wish someone told me that Mm -hmm. back then when it was all so hard. (laughs) Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Eric as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit follow so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent episode with Julie Sani on ghee and warming winter greens. Plus, a special bonus episode on how the surprising connection between chilies and cannabis played out in one of her classic cookbooks. In the second half of this episode, Eric tells us why the sweet, spicy tang of yum yum sauce on Korean fried chicken can be doing so much more in our home cooking. Meet you back here for that. I'd love to hear more about the process of writing the book because you did not plan to move home to Atlanta for as long as you did, right? You know, I was trying to do most of the book in this tiny studio, you know, (laughs) apartment in Manhattan at the height of the pandemic. And I was sort of cooking these weird fusion dishes. Like one of them was a kimchi tuna noodle soup and it tasted awful. And another was like a really early version of the fish sauce butter chicken that 
had nothing to do with Korean cuisine. It, it, it's just like I was trying to make these Frankenstein-y dishes that felt very inauthentic, you know, and disingenuous, and and it, it, they weren't coming together. Eventually, a few months later, I I realized I had to go to Atlanta to be with my family because I really missed them. It was really hard during, you know, COVID, being apart from them and worrying about their health and. I did go to write the kimchi chapter. I was like, I have to be there in person for this, at least. You know, I, I was like, I need to write down my mother's kimchi recipes. That's a whole chapter. That's going to be like a thing. It'll take me like a month or two. <laughs> and I went down and ended up staying for three months. At the end of month three, it was like, well, this kitchen is huge. And I love having the help. I think I didn't realize how important it was to not do things alone. You know, and I think that was the biggest lesson for me with the cookbook and and so I was there for the first time in a very long time, just like living with my family for nine whole months and realizing how much easier life was in those nine months. I was able to write this book in in that kind of quiet space. And that was really important. There were moments when one of us would take the lead and one of us would support. So, you know, all the kimchi is my mom was, you know, mostly the, the main person on those. And she was there to taste and to be like, that's weird or that won't work or... And that was always the energy, the negative energy I needed <laughs> to the negative Korean mom, mom energy I needed to prove her wrong. And those are some of the best dishes, you know, and I, I, I don't I, I say that as a joke. I, th I thought it was it's really funny because that's such a Korean mom thing to be like, I don't think that'll work. And then just making that kid even more rebellious because it's like, well, let me prove you wrong. And and then she's like, oh, that's really delicious. But she was a great judge. You know, I I had to pass the like the dishes had to pass under her palate in order for them to make it into the book and it was nice to have that person you mm. know it was nice it was a really rigorous mm. process i would say well it's an example of a recipe that you got rejected from your mom or the rest of your family and then reworked and it passed their test the chickpeas really the chickpeas were actually one of the first things i was making in this kitchen as well in new york um at the very beginning and I had in mind this idea of like a wonderful chickpea dish. Like I would love a really cool, convenient canned chickpea dish that tastes really great and has some Korean influences, but nothing ever felt original enough. Nothing ever felt right. Everything felt forced. And those early renditions were kind of soy sauce based. They were really ugly. They're, you know, they were soy sauce stained mm -hmm. chickpeas. So they, they were just brown, even with like a garnish on top or sesame seeds or anything, even with gloss, it still just looked really not a pretty brown either. And it just never tasted that good. And I made that so many times. Was it always crispy chickpeas? No, no, it wasn't. In the beginning, it was just, I think it was like a caramelized, you know, red onion kind of situation. And it was just on the stove completely. I, I think I was trying to recreate this Korean dish called kongjorim, which means braised black beans or something. And it, it's sort of this panchan that's um, these very... Hmm, jet black, almost chewy, soy saucy beans that are really flavorful and wonderful. But I think the difference is those beans are, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but they are, they're not like canned beans. Like they're not mushy, they're, they're chewy. And so that's the lure. And so I was trying to tackle that flavor profile, but the flavor profile alone wasn't enough to make these mushy chickpeas taste good you know so I had to eventually rethink it and I think there were there were so many moments when my family tasted it and they would be like hmm yeah that's better yeah I think that's good and I'd be like cool I think I did it I think I did it and then 
And then that would sit in the fridge for days. And then, like, all of the batches that happened, they would just sit in the fr- No one ever wanted to grab it and, like, reheat it or, like, eat it. I had intended this dish to be, like, a panchan that you can, like, have around and keep eating. And, and my mom would be like, you know, none of us went back for those beans. Like, they were good that first night, but none of us craved it mm-hmm. later. We really examined our psychologies. We were like, why did we not go back for that? You know, why did we not go back for a second bite? It's because it wasn't that good. And so I think eventually I was like, I was like, what if I just roasted them? And and I also like that because I love the notion of having something going in the oven while you're working on a sauce on the on the stove and just combining them in the end. That that to me is just easier than one pot cooking, actually. I think that's, I like have a whole thesis statement about that. And I actually have a lot of weeknight pasta recipes on Fukidi 2 that are like that, where you roast a bunch of vegetables on a sheet pan and boil pasta on the side and um, it's two pan cooking, but it's easier than a lot of one pot dishes, I think. Eventually, I, I went away from the, the soy sauce thing and I must have been working on the yang yum chicken in the book. And yang yum sauce is that sticky red gochujang based sauce that's on Korean fried chicken. No one calls it yang yum sauce in America. They just call it like Korean fried chicken, but you know, it's, it's a very specific sauce and it has a name and yang yum means seasoned. So, I just, I don't know if Koreans will necessarily think of this as like, oh yeah, that's what it's called, yang yum. They'll just be like, oh, that's just a sauce. Like that just means seasoned. The word yang yum is used in the context of this sauce often. And the legend goes, I didn't report this or you know, fact check or anything yet, but because um, I haven't written this, but in my preliminary research, I learned that this man used strawberry like leftover strawberry jam, maybe from like KFC packets or I'm not, I'm not really, really sure, but like it was around the time KFC started in, in Korea. I'm not saying it's like a direct correlation, but there's strawberry jam in that yang yum sauce. Oh, wow. And when I saw that, I was like, that's so interesting and weird. And what a, what a Korean invention. Like Koreans love their sweetness and the strawberry jam is really delicious. Like in place of sugar, you use that jam and it not only gives the sauce body, it also gives it like this nice glistening effect. I eventually combined the crispy chickpeas, which, you know, instead of crispy chicken, I was like, what if it's crispy chickpeas? And then with the, the sauce, it tasted great. My parents loved it. They were like, oh yeah, this is it, this is it. And that was the reaction I never got from the soy sauce chickpeas. And then I was like, you know, what if the garnish is like the fried chicken as well? And so there is a fried chicken dish where it's called pa chicken, and it just means like scallion chicken. And it's just fried mm-hmm. chicken with a huge pile of, you know, julienne scallions on top. They kind of balance out the richer flavors of everything that's under it. And so I think it's quite genius. And it's really, it's really Korean too, like to want to balance out the richness um, of a crispy chickpea of that really lovely sour, sweet, spicy sauce, you know, you sort of want something that's going to cut through. And um, there's also like a funny story of like, they kind of remind me of my grandma's hair. (laughs) her like permed hair so um while developing this recipe my brother and I kind of like um reminisced about that and there was like this hairstyle that in in my grandmother's generation that was really common so we cut that out of the book but it was now you know you know the real story behind the chickpeas which is the hair is sort of a reference to my grandmother as well (laughs) the title was um crispy young chickpeas with scallion perm and um those are the b-sides that only genius recipes readers get to know and, <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> but you know, don't skip them. It's it's also a great garnish to kind of learn to do for everything else. Um, when you julienne scallions and you soak them in cold water, they kind of curl up and become this lovely tangle of scallion that's really eatable because soaking them also gets rid of some of that raw onion flavor and becomes this like really refreshing salad. And some people even dress that, you know, that scallion perm, they dress it with vinegar and sugar and salt. And, and that's also really lovely. My parents were, were like eating it with chopsticks with beer and they were like, this is a great bar snack. Like, I also think it's really great with just white rice as like kind of like the kongjorim, but it just happens to be a different flavor. But the texture and the experience of eating that as a panchan somehow got, just got so much closer to the original thing that I was aiming for, which is this platonic ideal of crispy, chewy, sweet, salty beans. <laughs> that tastes really good with, um, you know, that tastes really good with with, uh, with rice. That's the story. Yeah. I actually didn't really have any thought about that in a while. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It's it's so emblematic of like the whole journey that you had with this book and the the value that being able to do it with your family brought to it and also not giving up on on what you were going for and it's so so interesting to hear how it went from one completely different thing to this other thing but still sounds like kind of captured the deliciousness yeah. at least and some of the experience that you were looking for yeah and I love the story too because it, it really tells the story of the creative process. But I think having the idea in the first place is the hard part and fine-tuning it into mm-hmm. something that feels really like right. I, get, I think that's a point, like that's the difference between fusion food, and, you know, that quote-unquote 90s-esque like fusion Asian thing versus something that comes from an authentic experience, which is these chickpeas were inspired by fried chicken. I think that's something that was really important for me with all of the recipes in here and Many of them, you know, took that journey and uh, and were better for it, you know. And once they landed in the book, they they had this. They were so strong, you know. They felt so right. They were like they they belong there, and um, and they stood up, and that felt really good. I'd love to hear a little bit more about a couple of the techniques that you use in the recipe too. Um, the the caramelized honey. Where else do you like to use that? Ooh, I do this tenjang beans and greens stew, and you just take some cannellini beans and you you fry some onions and scallions, and um, it all just goes in the same pot with some Swiss chard and tenjang, which is this wonderful Korean fermented soybean paste. I try to say it in every podcast, every interview, every radio show. Tenjang, I want the world to know about it because it's so one of my favorite pantry items. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. you know... When you have those like salty flavors, those savory flavors, one way to really bring out the nuances of those is to add bitterness and sweetness. And I think that's what caramelized honey does. I think when you when you caramelize the honey, you're also bringing out some bitter notes because you're you're cooking the sugars. And I think that's that flavor is different than raw honey. And I think once I discovered that, I was I just kind of like use it whenever there's an opportunity in the pot as you're building flavor, building the layers. Like if there's opportunity for like, if there's dry heat and then a moment for wetness later, I like to do the honey part with like ribs. Mm. Anything you're trying to glaze, Mm -hmm. but still add a little nuance too. So like carrots or vegetables, you know. And do you usually do it this way where it's kind of in the same pans, like stuff scooched to the side, caramelize a bit of honey and then then, um, like gloss it through at the end? Yeah, I think so. 
Or you want to add honey and there happens to be heat already. Like, why not? So efficient. Yeah. And, you know, this this sauce anyway, it's super savory, right? It's it's really sweet, but it's also, like, the gochujang has some sugar, but it also has fermented umami flavor. There is ketchup, which is also sweet, but it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, the soy sauce. There's There are these, like, salty ingredients, and I think having some balance there is really lovely. And Koreans really lean into the salt and lean into the sweet. So I think those are... There's a word for it, actually. It's called tanjan, and it's a portmanteau of uh, sweet and salty. But the genius of this, you know, that sauce, you can use it for anything. And that's what I love about people who follow recipes. Um, when they incorporate the recipe into their own lives and realize, oh, this sauce, it would be great on chicken. It would be great on, um, what else have they done it on? Like, I don't know, ribs and pork chops. And I just, on tofu, oh, it'd be great on tofu. It's an all-purpose mm-hmm. sauce. And I just love that. It is celebrated on its own. It doesn't need an explanation. It doesn't need a parenthesis. It doesn't need a Korean something something sauce. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just yang yum sauce. It's just yang yum. And I think the more we call our recipes by what they are instead of trying to translate them for a white audience, the better we will all be. And the more equitable the space will be. And um, yeah, I'll just cut myself off there, but I could go on forever about that. But <laughs> yeah. And all it takes is reading about it or hearing about it or seeing it to then know what yang yum sauce is. Yeah, exactly. I have one question about Jean. What has her reaction in your relationship been to seeing you writing about her cooking, writing recipes with her, like writing these tributes to her? Um, How has that affected your day-to-day relationship with her? She's she's always so low-key about everything. And she's a very humble person, I think. But maybe that's why she doesn't like to brag or celebrate things like that but it was nice to see her flip through the book you know for the first time and just to see pictures of her and her hands she's just quite humble but I will say one thing I think once it entered her world (laughs) she realized she's not on the internet she's not on social media she barely knows how to use her phone so one time I think she was having lunch with a friend like a church friend or something and that person was like, oh my God, I read this story by Eric Kim, like blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, oh, did you read that in the New York Times? And he, she was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, that's my son. <laughs> and then she was like, you're Eric Kim's mom? Once that happened, then she was like, oh, this is like, this is a thing. This is like a, a big deal. And I was like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you, <laughs> like my life is like changing really <laughs> fast and you're a part of it, but you're kind of not a part of it because you don't care. Um, or I think it's good she doesn't care because she likes her life, like her peace and her quiet and Mm-hmm. you know, to be left alone. And I think that's, I really value that as well. I, I could see myself. I'm like that a lot, actually. Um, so that was fun. And to hear her kind of recognize that all these other people in her circle happen to know me and not because I'm her son, but because of wherever they're finding me. I also think something that's hard is, um, you know, her English is her second language. So those pieces have to be sort of translated for her. And I think she tries her best to read through them, but she, one thing she says to me is like, I know it's beautifully written. I just, I, the sad part is I can't feel the import. Like I can't feel the emotional little like poetic devices you use to like, you know, that all these other people are feeling, but she knows by reading the comments because people are like, this made me cry or whatever. So that's something that's, you know, I think about and um, I'd like to tackle it from two ways, which is, you know, get her some English lessons or something. I think I think she would enjoy taking classes. I think I would love for her English to get better for m- multiple reasons. She has a lot of racist experiences happen to her at grocery stores. 
in, in, in Georgia and mm. she doesn't feel like she can fight back. And so it's things like that, but also to read my work, you know? Thanks for listening, and my thanks to Eric Kim. His new book is Korean-American, Food That Tastes Like Home, and it's out March 29th. This week's episode was put together by Amy Schuster, Harry Sultan, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a favorite recipe that really gets your family talking, I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com. Or just tag me on Instagram at McGlorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating or review. Or send this episode to someone who you want to spend more time cooking with. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. <laughs>